Blessed assurance. We sang that song earlier tonight, and as well, worthy of praise is Christ our Redeemer. What a beautiful anthem, and what a powerful sentiment expressed in both those songs, as well as all three that you and I had sung together. So good to be able to be here tonight for all of us to offer our heartfelt worship unto the God that made us and the God with whom we hope to spend all of eternity. You may have noticed on the slide behind me, as well as the announcement in the bulletin earlier today about tonight's subject, the entitlement I've given to it is incorrect designation. And my choice of that, I think, will become clear enough fairly soon. But I would like to build up somewhat to the nature of the reason for that title. This opening slide, this introductory slide, is one that will at least begin that journey in this way. That Bible that you hold on your lap, or perhaps you have in an electronic version in, in some format, is such that of the 66 books within it, we all understand that there are various groupings or categories of those books, and quite often to have them grouped that way is very valuable. It's often encouraging of study. It helps one appreciate the connection, for example, between the time periods of certain books. But isn't it interesting in light of that, that it would seem to me that there is an incorrect designation that is sometimes connected with some of those books. You may at first thought appear, which books might this be? And what might this incorrect designation be? And what might be an alternate and better selection or choice? This next slide will more carefully start that journey by highlighting again what, what I hope for us to discuss. That Bible, of course, as you and I know, is such that of the 66 books, there are various selections or groupings of them, and we might just name some of them. The first five books of the Old Testament. Those are the five books of law, as they're often called, but others refer to them as the Pentateuch. As you can well tell on that slide, penta is a prefix that means five, and took carries the idea of law. And so this connection, or at least the sense that might easily be seen in them, is five books of Old Testament law. In it, of course, the marvelous wonder of God's law, given that law of Moses to the children of Israel. But you know as well as I that one of the interesting matters that's true of all five of them, they were written by the same person. Moses wrote all of them. And so in many ways, that as well as other ideas, makes it reasonable to bundle them together and call them the five books of law, the Pentateuch, if you please, but that same sense, of course, is true of other books as well. The major prophets, for example. There are 17 books of prophecy in the Old Testament, but the first five of them are the so-called major prophets. Now, the Bible never calls them major prophets. However, all five of them are somewhat longer. They at least had a careful sense as to not only the time period, but also the wonder of the message delivered. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and Daniel fit into that category. But quickly following upon the heels of that one, the minor prophets, these number 12, and they're shorter, admittedly, but again, there at least is the recognized union of the prophetic ideas within them, and those shorter books are bundled in that particular sense. In the ancient Bibles, 
they weren't always separated out in terms of the same way they are today, but the same ideas, the same text, of course, was their prison. The New Testament, what about the gospel accounts? Four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we know these highlight the details of the greatest life ever lived, the life of Jesus the Messiah. We find in it some similarities, but we also notice that each one was written to a unique audience, and each one could highlight various and sundry matters pertinent to the value of Christ to that given group of people. It's no wonder that we can again see them grouped as the gospel accounts. I do think sometimes that there's a little bit of a misword used in connection to them. Some people call them the gospels. I don't believe that's a wise choice. There's but one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Didn't Paul say, if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which I preached unto you, let him be accursed? Galatians 1.8. I think it better to call them the gospel accounts. And again, there are four of them, Matthew through John. But you'll notice maybe one final one. Have you ever heard of the book called the Apocalypse? Maybe that name is not that familiar, but that's the Revelation. The last book in our Bible is the book of Revelation, but others might well term that the Apocalypse, and certainly some older Bibles actually called it that name. There's nothing inappropriate about that. The first word in the first verse in that book in Greek is apocalypse. It would be perfectly fine to call it by that name. But none of that has been the primary subject of the lesson this evening. It's been merely my intent to use those ideas to cement in our thinking the fact that we do often group books together into various groupings, and quite often it's very valuable at the bottom of that slide, though, is this observation. There are 21 books in the New Testament that are under the heading of the epistles, beginning, of course, at Romans and ending at Jude. We have 21 books that tell us day by day how to live the Christian life, how to act, how to think, how to behave. And yet in that book listing of 21 books, there are three books that are called the pastoral epistles, at least in so many references. It is them that will be the subject of our discussion tonight. What are these pastoral epistles? Which ones are they? And is that a reasonable designation? The next slide will start our journey by inviting you to note some quotations. I've listed these for your consideration. May I quote? Three of Paul's epistles, namely the two to Timothy and the one to Titus, are called pastoral epistles because they contain instructions with regard to the governing of churches and the training of church members. That's a direct quotation from the Dixon Analytical Bible. I again would invite you to notice that there's this name, this designation that's attached to the two books to Timothy and the one to Titus called the pastoral epistles. Look at the next quotation. This one from the Wycliffe Bible Dictionary. It reads, Pastoral epistles is a name given to three New Testament letters, first and second Timothy and Titus, because their contents consist of advice regarding the administration of the local church. May I again invite you to appreciate three books, first and second Timothy and Titus, and then Titus, and they're called pastoral epistles.
quotation number three, taken from Halley's Bible Handbook. First and second Timothy and Titus are commonly called pastoral epistles. Quotation number four, taken from the Illustrated Dictionary of the Bible. Pastoral epistles is the name given to three letters of the Apostle Paul. First and second Timothy and Titus, they are called the pastoral epistles because they clearly show Paul's love and concern for, oh, as pastor and administrator of several local churches. The fifth and final quotation. From the circumstance that Timothy and Titus were each exercising the care of the churches of a district, these have been called the pastoral epistles. That's taken from B.W. Johnson's notes on the Bible. Those kind of quotations could have been extended many, many times over. But I think the five would be sufficient, at least for our thinking. The designation pastoral epistles... I will make the assertion, I don't believe that's a particularly good choice as a designation for these three books. And I'll offer you the reasons as to why I think that's true, and certainly that thinking is not the first that would be with me. There have been many others who have perhaps wondered about that, and this next slide will begin our journey. Three books, First and Second Timothy and Titus, are those which many in our world group into a section called the pastoral epistles. But the simple fact of the matter is that whole notion is motivated by a complete misunderstanding of a pastor. We're all well aware that in the denominational world, a pastor is a preacher, although the Bible does not teach that. Nowhere does the Bible make that explicit connection between a pastor and a preacher. The Bible, in fact, uses that word pastor, as you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, for a different office, for a different work, if you please. You and I know that the Bible has a number of designations or descriptive words that are used for the work of an elder. That man is called an elder, he's called a bishop, he's called a presbyter, he's called an overseer, but he's called a shepherd. And the word pastor has reference to a shepherd. The word pastor, as it occurs in Ephesians 4.11, is a reminder to you and me about the nature of their task, their work as overseeing the local congregation. It is that idea that the denominational world has connected to the preacher. The Bible doesn't make that connection. A preacher is an evangelist. Now, it may well be in certain congregations, the preacher may also be an elder, but he doesn't have to be. It is not demanded that he be. The evangelist is not one and the same, you see, as an elder. When the denominational world or when others make reference then to the pastoral epistles, they're using the word pastor in connection to a preacher and again, may I say that if we use that word, we are somewhat reinforcing that same mistake. I would offer at the bottom of that slide maybe a better name for these books besides pastoral epistles, one that maybe I would hope we won't use as much from now on. The evangelist epistles, that fits. Timothy and Titus were evangelists. They weren't elders. They weren't pastors, but they were evangelists. In fact, our lesson text for the night tonight 
that was read earlier, the sweetness as Cale read for us from 2 Timothy 4, 5, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He was an evangelist. He was prompted to be an evangelist. He was motivated to be an evangelist. And Paul encouraged and taught him in the efforts of his work as an evangelist. And thus, this designation, the pastoral epistles, is perhaps not at all a particularly good one for you and me to use. To highlight some of that thinking, could we at least turn to those three books, and I've made a, a very brief selection of certain passages out of them that might reinforce in our thinking the words evangelist epistles. In fact, any preacher of the gospel probably ought to spend much time in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus because it's the inspired words of Paul to young preachers, to preachers at least younger than he. The kinds of things that should be often upon your mind, often in your thinking, often a part of the understanding that goes with your work with a congregation pleasing unto God. Notice as you can appreciate near the top of that slide, Where's the first mention of Timothy in all the New Testament? We find it in Acts 16. In the opening verses of that chapter, we come face to face, if you please, with this young person who, when Paul came through on that second missionary journey, Paul found a young man who was apparently quite excited, quite interested, and a fertile soil in which to begin to plant the labors of future efforts for his life in the, in the ministry. No wonder then we frequently find him mentioned from that point forward in the New Testament. Several books he's mentioned along with Paul as sending greetings to various congregations, for example. But in addition to that, isn't it fascinating to reflect on how highly commended this man was? Philippians 2 verses 19 and 20, Paul was able to say, I have no man like-minded like Timothy who will naturally care for your estate. A man who loved the souls of people, a man who labored in the places in which he was able to do so. And Paul highly said, I have nobody like Timothy. In addition to that, you might observe that next statement. There are several things in the letters to Timothy which thus will ring so sweetly in our thinking as it relates to the work of an evangelist. In chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Timothy, notice these words. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now certainly some of the things that a preacher should do, an elder should be aware of as well, and stand firmly for that which is true. But in this case, Timothy, I encouraged you to remain behind at Ephesus. And do what? To oppose or make statements regarding things that ought not be taught. False doctrine was prevalent, you see, and there were matters, and it was important for the truth to ring powerfully from the things that Timothy would say. Turn over a couple of chapters. In chapter 4, verse 16, "...take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine." Now, that word doctrine is just another word for teaching. Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your teaching. 
continuing them, for in doing this thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. Here was a man preaching. Timothy, watch your life. Make sure it's an appropriate example. But furthermore, be careful with regard to what you teach. Because in so doing, you'll not only save yourself, but those that hear you. It's vital to understand then that this message, this book, was directed to a man who was a preacher. He wasn't an elder. He was a preacher. Let's look even further. In chapter 4, verse number 5 of 2 Timothy. In fact, in that same chapter, there's a couple of verses I would encourage you to note with me. Beginning in verse 2, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. We may just pause a moment and note this. Timothy again was stationed in a location, namely the city of Ephesus. And at that location, it was of course a bustling Roman city. It was large. There were many influences that quite frankly were evil. Timothy, you preach the Word. Don't you fill your pulpit with genealogies and questions that don't profit? Don't you fill the pulpit with things that don't benefit the souls of people? You preach the Word. You do it when it's convenient. You do it when it's not convenient. You be given to that message, for that is what shall save the souls of those who obey it. Read further. Verse number 3 goes on to say, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You and I might think that that's a rather modern issue, but you see, it's as old as 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. Paul told Timothy, there's going to come a time when they will not have an interest in sound doctrine. But rather, as the text goes on to say, they'll be turned aside to fables, to endless genealogies, and you'll notice they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. You know, an itchy ear is sometimes not just due to a mosquito bite. It's due, you see, to quite often a desire because I don't want to change my life. I like the way it is, and I'm just not going to change. And I'll find me a preacher that'll tell me what I want to hear. Shame on that preacher. What was encouraged in Timothy is you preach the Word when they like it and when they don't, when it's convenient and when it's not. When it is settled as that which they want to hear, that's not important. Isn't it interesting how that Paul said, I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, Acts 20, verses 20 and 27. Perhaps this should be noted in verse 5. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy was told, you see, to do the work of an evangelist. You are a preacher. It is still a fascinating matter to reflect on the wisdom of God set in the reality of preaching. Isn't it true? God, by miraculous character, could have given His Word to everybody instantly without a preacher. But that's not the methodology He chose. 1 Corinthians 1 points out the needfulness of preaching the power and beauty of preaching, the privilege and power that goes with it. And so Timothy, you see, wasn't a pastor. He was a preacher. And in so doing, he was an evangelist. The evangelist epistles. At this point, why don't we give thought to Titus briefly?
That next book in the New Testament, that book of Titus, again, but three chapters, it's not terribly lengthy. But keep in mind some of the things about it. We first encounter Titus, at least by name, in the book of 2 Corinthians. It would seem that in Galatians is perhaps the earliest reference chronologically to him. In Galatians 2 verse 1. But at the very least, isn't it interesting how frequently Titus is mentioned in the various writings of Paul? Sweet, powerful, faithful to the Lord. But on this next slide, I've asked you to notice just a few statements from the book of Titus that remind us again about the work that Titus was given to do. Starting in verse number 5 of chapter 1, Paul writing to Titus said, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Do you see with me the distinction between what Titus was given to do? It was involved in the appointing of elders. There weren't any elders there at that time. And yet his labor, his work was on this island of Crete, and it was a place with many influences that were evil and wicked, Later on in this same chapter, it was highlighted, these Cretans, they're always, verse number 12, liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. That's a pretty poor reflection on the nationality of people. That's what they were known for. In the midst of that kind of location, Titus was to proclaim the wonderful message of truth and to help them appreciate that the things that were often recognized in society were not the way they were to live. And so in verse 5, Titus, I've left you in Crete, that you may set in order what's lacking, that you may set in order what's wanting, and that includes appointing elders. Isn't it interesting then that the labor, the effort given to Titus as a pastor, or rather as a preacher, was one that was different than what often is used to designate this book. Look furthermore near the beginning of chapter number 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Tim, or rather Titus, you speak. Your labor, your effort is to be involved in this proclamation, this speaking. Note the last verse of that same chapter. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. It is not to say, of course, that an elder can't rebuke, or an elder can, of course, correct, but there's something about the appreciation of the work of a preacher. As that man is supposed to stand solely upon preaching the Word, it will clearly convict, it will step on toes, including his own, and it will do that with power, and it will do it with urgency. And that's what Titus and Timothy both were supposed to do. Maybe finally, I've asked you to notice that well-known text that occurs, Let no man despise thee. You know, those who preach the truth will sometimes find themselves insulted and blasphemed and reviled because of the stance they take. Well, you'll notice here was one passage in which Titus was admonished, let no man despise you. You can't control what they think. You can control how you react to it, and you can control the disposition you carry in terms of the truth. 
Is it any wonder that slide closes with this observation? I mentioned at the start of the lesson, we often call these, or at least they are called, the pastoral epistles. I hope we will not refer to them that way anymore. They're the evangelist epistles. And in these particular books, we find things like this. We find things that are, in fact, vital. It is in these books we find the qualifications of an elder. When a given congregation who has a preacher already but is interested in appointing elders, where do you go? What should that preacher preach so that those individuals would know what kind of man could be appointed as an elder? It's these books. In Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3 is a lengthy list of qualifications, for example, that an elder, that a man must satisfy in order to be an elder. And therefore, again, notice the evangelist epistles. Not only that, consider the statement of 1 Timothy chapter 2. If a given congregation, whether or not they have elders, if they'd like to know how are we supposed to worship, you can turn to 1 Timothy 2 and glean much about the regulations of worship, God's expectations of it, who is to lead and why. 1 Timothy 2 is a powerful place that in fact shares that information with us, that inspired piece of information. In addition to that, what about the characteristics then that go again, whether or not a congregation has an elder, has elders, how should people live? And yet these books time and again point out the existence of false teaching, the needfulness of purity in life, and how important it is that all of us live that way. Specifically, you might take note, flee youthful lust, 2 Timothy 2.22. 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, the powerful statement, Let no man despise thee, but be thou an example of the believers. And then he goes on to list in word, in conversation, in purity, in charity, Maybe it is at that point that the two final things on that slide would be this. Preaching the truth. That we find throughout these three books. Whether it be Titus, whether it be Timothy, you preach the Word of God. You do it carefully. You do it consistently. You do it again, whether it's convenient or not. Because that is the message that individuals need to hear. They must hear that. I've asked you to observe a few particular passages, perhaps of that list. 2 Timothy 2.15 comes so beautifully to mind. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All of us desire to rightly divide the word of truth, but make no mistake about it. That gentleman that would be a preacher, an evangelist, will be held to a higher standard of judgment because of his influence on other people in his preaching. If he misleads them, if he leads them astray, if he says what is not gospel truth, and they obey that and fail in terms of their own salvation, he will at least be somewhat responsible for leading them in that direction. No wonder Timothy was told, do the work of an evangelist. 
My brethren, be not many masters, not many teachers, knowing we shall receive the greater damnation. James chapter 3, verse 1. As we close that slide and come near the close of our lesson this evening, isn't it still sweet that we find in these same books, whether or not a congregation has elders, we find the sweet description of a congregation of the Lord's people. And a preacher should preach that, that it is the family of God, it's the household of God, and you and I are all blessed to be children of God by faith. As we close this lesson tonight, it has been my hope that we have at least been reminded of this designation, pastoral epistles, that it would seem is not really fitting to these books. They're evangelist epistles. And so, as we refer to them, if we choose to do it, might we choose a name more like that and do that in such a way that we will not give endorsement to the denominational idea of a pastor, but rather to the work of an evangelist. I hope we've been motivated by at least a brief consideration of these three books and the powerful points that are made within them. As always, though, just as those preachers often would have, urging faithful obedience to the commandments of the gospel, there could be someone in this assembly who is in a position in life that needs to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, either as a wayward child of God or as one who for the first time would like to become a Christian. The message of becoming a Christian doesn't rest in human hands, you see. It's not our plan of salvation. It's the gospel plan of salvation. It's the Lord's indication. And He said, you have to believe in Me. You have to repent of your sins. You must confess My name as a Son of God, and you must be baptized. And if you'll do that, He will add you to His church and you can enjoy the faithfulness of that association and all the blessings that come with it. If, on the other hand, you as a child of God have become unfaithful, and it doesn't matter the particulars of that unfaithfulness, whatever it may be, if it is not consistent with the New Testament, then you have erred and there's only one that can forgive you, and it's Jesus. You need to come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5. If we could help you in that way tonight upon your confession and your repentance, we'd be delighted to pray for you. And as we petition God upon your behalf, He will forgive you. And you will be reinstated to a lovely position of faithfulness. The song of encouragement has been selected tonight. And as we use these evangelist epistles to motivate our service to God, may you and I serve in our capacity and whatever our position in life may be. And if tonight we could be of assistance in a public way to you and your response to the gospel, won't you come while together we stand and sing?